Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is episode 65, which means I guess the podcast is officially old enough to retire. Or maybe just officially old. I did just have a birthday recently, and while I didn't really consider myself old with the age I turned, I I got to thinking back and remembered when my dad turned that age, and remembered how long ago that was, and then I felt old. It's, It's kind of weird getting to an age where I have especially vivid memories of my parents being that age. It's just very weird. But either way, the show's not going away anytime soon, as evidenced by this episode where we will be looking at Action Comics number 27. Um, Before we do that, though, it's a bit of news that's a few weeks old at this point, but such is the curse of trying to be ahead on the show. Uh, But in any event, I I do want to mention that Sheldon Moldoff died on February 29th at the age of 91. While better known as a Batman artist, Moldoff did ink several Superman-related stories uh, during the 1960s, mainly in the pages of World's Finest Comics, but he also did several stories in the Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane books, as well as Superman, including Jerry Siegel's classic The Night of March 31st from Superman number 145 and The Legion of Supervillains which introduced those characters in Superman number 147. In direct relation to this podcast, Moldoff is noted for being the last surviving person to have worked on material in Action Comics number 1. He did an odds and ends filler page in that issue. Comic writer Mark Evanier also noted that that page was likely his first professional sale as well. I know that time moves on and that deaths are inevitable, but it's always sad to see yet another piece of comics history fade away, and it's kind of especially sad to me that there's now no one alive that had a hand in putting out what is really one of the most important comic books in history. But thankfully, we still have the books themselves to enjoy, even if the creators themselves are no longer with us. And hopefully, given that we do still have their bountiful body of work, we can still contribute to letting their legacy live on. Do you enjoy time travel in general, and the Silver Age of comic books in particular? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast. My name is Billy Hogan, and I will be your host. Together, we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. One week, we will take a look at the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and soon, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week, we will feature the Man of Steel's titles, Superman and Action Comics, which will include the Supergirl stories during her run in the back of that title. You can join me each week on Wednesday or Thursday at 
the Superman Fan Podcast.blogspot.com, which is available on iTunes. And your emails are always welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape. So, this episode, we are back to the spinner rack for a look at Action Comics number 27. It kind of feels nice getting back to the comic books again. Uh, while I like the format on the show that lets me jump from one medium to the next, it really helps keep things from getting monotonous. At the same time, I do miss what seems to be less of a focus on the comic books, like we had at the beginning. Anyway, Action Comics number 27 was released sometime around June 25, 1940, just a few days after the end of the Horace Morton storyline Charlie and I looked at last episode. It's got an August cover date and a 10 cent price, and our cover is by Paul Cassidy. The Chronicles and I believe the Archives credit the cover to Wayne Boring, but it was Paul Cassidy. In fact, it's the first cover penciled and inked entirely by Cassidy. Uh, he had done some inking over Joe Schuster's pencils on several previous covers, but this one he handled all by himself. And it's just an awesome cover. Uh, we see Superman fighting off a lion to protect Lois Lane, who uh, is fallen and on the ground behind him. It's just a great cover with Superman large and, and front and center swatting the lion away. This also marks what could be considered the first cover appearance of Lois. Issues 23 and 24 of Action Comics both showed Superman rescuing a woman who looked vaguely like Lois, but those were both brunettes, where Lois has been portrayed with black hair in the comic books to this point. The shield on Superman's chest is large and clear, with the you know the red S on the yellow field and a thin yellow border surrounding it. There's no S on the cape, and in fact the cape looks a little bit wonky, but other than that, it's, it's just simply a tremendous cover. The world's largest selling comic magazine blurb, which I actually just now realized should be hyphenated, but it, it's been moved to the top between the issue number and the DC bullet and it will remain in this location for a couple years yet. The 13-page Superman story inside was written by Jerry Siegel, penciled by Paul Cassidy, and inked by Dennis Neville. I believe this sadly is going to be the final Superman comic book story where Neville has a hand in the art. After this, he does scattered work for a few other companies, finally returning to uh, All-American Comics, which at this time was, or at that time, was operating independently later in the, in the 1940s. If you're interested in more on Neville's life and career, be sure to check out the spotlight I did on him way back in episode 36. Our story was untitled originally, but has since been called the Brentwood Rehabilitation Home. And it begins as Clark Kent shows up at Lois Lane's apartment for a date. Lois is on the phone from someone raising funds for the Brentwood Rehabilitation Home and agrees to give a donation. After she hangs up, Clark says he's heard rumors that the people who run the home aren't as benevolent as they let on. 
But Lois thinks Clark is wrong, and the, soon, and the two soon head out to investigate anyway. When they arrive, they're greeted by the caretakers of the home, a Mr. and Mrs. Tweed. The Tweeds show them around the place, you know, the living quarters, the workshop, and the lounge area, and everything seems on the up and up. So Lois gives them another donation, and Clark and Lois leave. As they're walking off the grounds, Clark starts to comment that Lois might have been right after all, when one of the boys from the home bounds over the wall and begs them to wait. The boy, who we learn is Davy Merrill, is injured. He, he cut his hands on the glass shards that are embedded into the top of the wall, and he's hungry. So Clark and Lois take him to a drugstore to get his hands patched up, and then they take him to a local diner for a meal. Though he's anxious to get back to the home before the Tweeds find out he's gone, he tells Clark and Lois that the Tweeds work the kids like slaves, making you know merchandise that's then hauled off in trucks to be sold out of state. He continues saying that if they refuse to work, they're beaten and worse. Lois then apologizes to Clark for blowing off the rumors that he heard, and then suggests going back to the home to gather evidence. Clark says that, you know, maybe they should just leave it to the police or the, the proper authorities. But Lois is having none of that and says that she's going back to look for evidence and Clark can pretty much do whatever he wants. So Clark tells Lois that he's going back to the Daily Planet to write up the story and the two part ways. Later, Lois and Davy arrive back at the home but soon come face to face with Black Satan, the ground's watchdog. Lois and Davy make a run for it and thanks to the skeleton key that Lois has hidden in her purse, are able to slip safely inside the building before being, you know, mauled by the dog. While Lois goes to the office to look for evidence, Davy starts to go back to bed, but is caught by the Tweeds, who were awoken by Black Satan's barking. Seeing his injured hands, Mrs. Tweed realizes that he's been over the wall again, and despite his pleas for mercy, Mr. Tweed takes Davy down to the cellar and shoves him into a small locker, pinning him inside to spend the night as punishment. Meanwhile, Lois continues her investigation, when she finds a room with banks of telephones, notes about their donations racket, and records of the huge profits made from the children's sweatshop. Just then, the Tweeds return and find Lois snooping. Recognizing her as one of the reporters from earlier, Mr. Tweed binds and gags her and takes her to the cellar, locking her in a cage. After Tweed leaves, Lois is able to wiggle out of her gag, and she and Davy commiserate over their shared plights. But unknown to Lois, help is on the way. Clark has changed into his Superman costume and streaks towards the home. A lithe leap carries the man of tomorrow over the wall. As Superman creeps cautiously towards the home, Black Satan silently creeps up behind him and crouches. Suddenly, a streak of black fury lands upon the man of tomorrow's back. Ferociously, the hound bites at Superman, but to its puzzlement, the sharp fangs leave no impression upon the man of steel's super tough skin. Abruptly, up into the sky leaps Superman with the dog on his back. Depositing it upon a tree limb high above the grounds, Superman leaps back down and enters into the home through the cellar window, only to discover Lois in a most unenviable position. Superman then rends apart the bars on Lois's cage and rips the door off the locker that's holding Davy. He then grabs both and leaps from the cellar, planting them by the gate at the edge of the grounds. With one mighty yank, Superman pulls the huge iron gates down, 
and tells Lois and Davy to go back to the Daily Planet to follow the story, while he settles the score with the Tweeds. Returning to the building, Superman finds Mr. Tweed heating an iron poker in the fireplace. After some Bill Finger-esque dialogue, Tweed tries to attack Superman with the poker, but Superman simply bites the end off of it. Freaked out at just seeing a man bite the end off of a hot iron poker, Tweed pulls a loose board from a pile of lumber, causing it to collapse onto Superman. But our hero smashes through the lumber, and then goes after him, only to get a kettle full of scalding water dumped in his face. Unhurt, Superman continues his charge, and Tweed throws knives and fires guns to fend off the Man of Steel. But Superman plows through the assault unfazed. Tweed runs into another room, slamming the door behind him, but, as we know, a mere door is no match for the Man of Steel, who knocks the door clean off its hinges with one jab. After getting hit in the face with an anvil Tweed had loosed, Superman goes after him once more, but Tweed pulls a lever, causing shears to snap and crash into Superman, only to shatter into pieces upon impact with Superman's invulnerable frame. Meanwhile, Lois, <laughs> having totally ignored Superman's warning, has sent Davy onto the paper by himself while she returns to the Brentwood home and sneaks in again, hoping to actually latch onto some evidence that she could take with her. However, as she's snooping, she's surprised by Mrs. Tweed, who promptly smashes a lamp over her head. Back downstairs, Mr. Tweed has spilled a vat of molten metal in Superman's path and smashed some gas lines, resulting in a huge fire. As Tweed runs back upstairs, Superman beats out the blaze with his bare hands and then crimps the gas line back together to prevent more trouble. Upstairs, Mr. and Mrs. Tweed drag Lois's unconscious body to the workshop and tie her to the table saw. When Superman enters, Tweed demands that Superman leave or Lois will die. Unwilling to bend to the madman's demands, Superman charges forward, planting his hand between Lois and the blade, causing the blade to simply shatter into fragments. As the Tweeds make a run for it, Superman covers Lois with his body, protecting her from the flying shards of metal. He then shoves his finger into the socket, causing a short circuit and preventing even more chaos. Heading out into the hall, Superman sees the Tweeds climbing into an elevator, with their records in hand. Prying open the elevator doors, Superman uses a cable to pull the car back down. He then throws the records at Lois, telling her to take them to the Daily Planet, and then begins pushing the car up, running along the elevator shaft until he crashes through the roof of the building. He then streaks through the sky with the elevator high overhead. He deposits it at the police station and orders the Tweeds to make a full confession or else. Later, back at the Daily Planet, Clark congratulates Lois on the scoop, and Lois gives Clark equal credit since it was his suspicions that put them on the trail. And still later, Clark interviews the new caretaker of the Brentwood home, who thanks Clark for helping him get the job, as well as Davy, who says their new superintendent is just swell. The end. Our splash this time out is, again, just a random image of Superman doing something, well, super. Uh, this time he's leaping over the gap left by a destroyed bridge and hoisted high above his head with one hand as a school bus loaded, no doubt, with children. It's an okay splash, not really the greatest, but not the worst we've seen. It's a fairly dynamic image. Superman's just a bit small on it. You really don't get a good look at Superman himself in it. 
We do, however, get a brand new intro text this time. Heartless criminals exploit the helpless and unfortunate. Clark Kent and his dual self, dynamic Superman, battle side by side with pretty Lois Lane, courageous girl reporter, to stamp out the evil geniuses of crime and corruption. Not exactly faster than a speeding bullet, but I like it. I'm pretty sure this particular intro never gets used again, but I like that Clark and Lois both get played up as well as Superman. Uh, Yes, Superman is the star of the strip and the focal point, but for my money, Clark Kent and Lois Lane are integral parts of the Superman story, so I, I like seeing them get played up as well. Unfortunately, that sort of leads to my next note when... Clark arrives at Lois' apartment for a date. Uh, really? We, we, we have more of this scattered portrayal of Lois. Now, to be fair, maybe it was only a night out as friends, but even so, given her treatment of him in the past, you'd think both Clark and Lois would be loath to spend a night hanging out as friends. Siegel does seem to be softening Lois' portrayal somewhat in recent stories, which is interesting given that the radio show is doing the same thing in the last storyline and, and the, you know, if the next is any indication. It's not been as dramatic of a change in the comics, but there has been a shift since the earliest Action Comics issues. So, I don't know, maybe Clark and Lois going on a date, even as friends, does make sense, but it, it, it still seems very inconsistent to me. Really, all this date did was set up why Clark was at Lois's apartment when she got the call from the Brentwood home, so that they could, you know, both be involved in the story. However, it wasn't absolutely necessary for that call to take place at her apartment. It could have just as well taken place at the at the Daily Planet and served the same purpose. So, just one little tiny switch in the location of the scene, and it would have completely removed my complaint with the scene. But there you go. Uh, Jumping ahead to page three, this is the gutsy Lois Lane that has become so iconic, and really what set her apart from other female characters in this era. Yes, she still gets played as the swooning girl in the damsel in distress, but she's also the gutsy reporter that just charges headfirst into action, often to her own peril. Also on this page, the guard dog is named Black Satan which is a great name for a guard dog that's the size of a small horse. On page four, I I wonder why Lois is carrying a skeleton key. I I guess it does kind of fit with her personality as a Snoopy reporter. Maybe, but it, it just seemed a bit odd. Skipping ahead to page seven, we see Superman for the very first time in the story, other than the splash page and we are halfway into the story. Again, making a parallel to the radio show, they seem to be getting to a place where they're comfortable not having Superman absolutely front and center in every single scene. He's still the star, yes, but they're becoming more okay with playing up Clark and Lois, and even in the radio show, Perry White, as characters too, which I really, really like. Um, Not just because it kind of balances out the stories more and, and makes Superman's appearances feel less forced, but it I really like seeing the like I said earlier, I really like seeing Clark and Lois and even Perry 
played up as characters because to me they're as much a part of the strip as Superman himself. And the fact that it's happening in both the comics and the radio show, while I have no hard evidence to back this up, I I think it shows how much control people other than Jerry Siegel had over the stories that Jerry Siegel was writing. For those of you who are more well-versed in comic book history and the the stuff that Jerry Siegel had to put up with, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, In the first panel of this page, Superman is running yes, running, to the home. And he says, 20 to 1, Lois is in a tough jam right now. That gal's a natural for getting involved in mischief, but that's just what I like about her. And then in the final panel of the page, after Superman smacks the dog and leaves him scared at the top of a very tall tree, because as we all know, Superman hates animals, he finds Lois and says, Lois Lane, and in a most unenviable fix. Well, what do you know? So, the same sentiment as we saw in the last Daily Strip is making its way into the comics. And I like that, especially on the next page where there's this bit of, you know, uh, playful banter, for lack of a better term, between Superman and Lois. He says, basically, that he should leave her in the cage and and force some sense into her head. And she replies, stop clowning and get me out of here. So he rips the bars apart with an odd, I can't resist a beautiful lady's please. And then, once she's freed, Lois says, what marvelous strength, and how about a further demonstration, indicating, you know, Davy's predicament, because he's been locked in the, the locker at that point. And I just love this shift or change that we seem to have gotten in the stories. You definitely get a sense of some playful romance between Lois and Superman. Lois seems friendlier to Clark, and yeah, she still barks at him and calls him a coward, but she's not as brazen towards him as she initially was. At the end of the story, she even gives him credit for the story at the home, or or partial credit at least, because it was his suspicions that put them on the trail. So that's a definite change. Even though it took more than two years for Siegel to get there. I'm glad we're finally getting to a triangle that's more, I guess, believable is one word. If Lois is always treating Clark like dirt, like in the earliest stories, then I can't get behind him having any feelings towards her whatsoever. But if she only bristles at the, you know, the clumsiness and the feigned cowardice, the the meekness, that kind of thing, but is at least respectful and friendly towards him as a colleague and as a human being, then I can completely buy that he would have some feelings for her because she only hates the mask. And yes, she's still treating Clark like dirt, but from Superman's point of view, she only hates something that's for show and created to be unlikable and so different from himself as to cast off any ideas that he's Superman. But, anyway, I'm not saying we're there yet. Like I said, her portrayal is still very scattered. But we're far closer than we were even a few stories ago. Speaking of similarities, though, on page 9, we have Tweed asking Superman, What kind of being are you? Unfortunately, we don't get a snappy comeback from Superman this time, though. On page 10, I liked this scene with Superman 
catching the bullet and then flicking it back at the second bullet, you know, knocking it out of midair like he was shooting marbles. I, I don't think Siegel really comprehended the kind of speed and precision that would take, but it's comics and Superman comics to boot, so I'm completely fine with it. Page 11, there's a panel here, uh, the one where Lois gets smacked over the head by Mrs. Tweed. This is a panel that's completely silent. There's no narration, no word balloons, no sound effects, and that was very, very rare in Golden Age, in the Golden Age, and, and really even the Silver Age. In this era, 13 pages was long for a story. Most features were a lot shorter, so with needing to tell a complete story in that space, as well as the tendency to over-explain things to the kids that were reading, every single panel on every single page was critical. So it's just really rare where they'd spend a whole panel with only action and no words. On the same page, it says that Tweed spills, <laughs> says he spills molten metal on the floor. And I can only ask, why does he have a vat of molten metal? You can't, you you can't just have a vat of molten metal lying around like it's a bag of flour. It has to be, you know, has to remain heated to remain, you know, molten. It's just complete nonsense to think that he would have the equipment to just keep molten metal on hand at all times. Uh, not to mention a need for molten metal at at his beck and call. I can't even excuse that one as being Golden Age Comics because it, it, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous. Uh, but moving ahead to page 13, I got a laugh from the panel. Uh, Superman grabs the, records books, the record books and literally throws them at Lois. In the panel, you see Lois standing there uh, and Superman just tossing a stack of books at her with a sidearm. It just seemed very unfriendly. We do have a couple nice panels here, though, as Superman shoves the elevator up the shaft. It, it says he races up the side of the shaft, but from the art, it almost looks like he's flying and pushing the car as he goes. And then we have a panel at the end that introduces the new superintendent. The guy thanks Superman, or <laughs> he thanks Clark for pulling strings and getting him the position, but we have no idea who this guy is or how Clark knew him. And he's not named, so it, it it actually comes off rather awkwardly written, but the, the sentiment is nice. But that's all I had as far as page by page. I didn't have too many comments on the plot itself. It was a it, it was very straightforward and, and covered a lot of the same ground that Siegel did in Superman and the Runaway in the Daily Strip. That was the seventh story from the dailies, and strangely enough, was running exactly one year prior to this comic book being published. That story was also printed in Superman number 3, and in that story, as you might remember, Superman met a runaway from the children's home, where the caretaker was abusing them and using the kids as cheap labor. Uh, Clark and Lois investigated, and Superman eventually lent a hand, and the day was saved. Ta-da! Uh, the stories weren't beat by beat the same, but they definitely covered the same ground, which is fine. I mean, it, it's something that I'm sure was a problem back in the 1940s, maybe not to the dramatic degree of the stories presented in the comics, but it, it definitely fits with, within the purview of the social justice-minded Superman of the 1940s. 
Other than that, I just don't have much at all to say that I haven't already mentioned in my page-by-page. There were a lot of Superman stunts at the end, but unlike Assassins and Spies, it didn't feel like one big frantic mess because Tweed was throwing one thing after another at him trying to stop him. So it was all within the flow of the narrative rather than Superman just leaping from one random thing to another random thing. Also interesting is that that Superman and the Runaway story was Dennis Neville's first Superman work, where this story is, I think, his last. It's probably a complete coincidence that the two stories were similar, but a a weird footnote for your trivia files. Art-wise, though, it's... It's very much what we've seen of late. Um, nothing really stand out on the positive or the negative. The colors seem a little smoother and a little more vibrant than in previous stories. I don't know if it's just the version I'm looking at, or, or but, but overall it just looks better. On page 7, when Superman is skulking about and gets attacked by Black Satan, it's night and there's a street light that has this really nice yellow-greenish glow around it that fades into the night sky. I I like this panel a lot, and I'll be sure to scan this one for the show notes. Strangely, I actually like the coloring in the original issue more than the redone coloring for the Chronicles. Uh, They seem very ham-fisted with the recoloring of the Chronicles. When Tweed throws the bucket of boiling water at Superman... The original has various colors in there, you know, overlapping the background so it actually looks like water. But in the Chronicles reprint, they've colored it all green with gray steam around it. It's just very bland and actually detracts from the art because the original panel looks pretty good. But that's a complaint about the reprint, not the original story. Like on the cover, Superman's chest shield is a red S on a yellow field. in a a thin yellow border, and the cape is exactly the same, but with a blue S rather than red. And it does seem to be missing more frequently in this story than has been common lately. So I don't know if they... I, I don't know if that's a Neville thing or a Cassidy thing. I really need to go back and look through the old stories and really try to line out who was doing what stories, you know, more frequently when the, the shield was there and, and really trace to see if I can narrow down whether it was certain artists putting that on there or whether it was just something that got left off kind of commonplace by all the artists. But anyway, that's something for another time. Uh, That's really all all I had comment-wise. I I definitely did like this story, just didn't have much to say about it. If you want to read it and see if you have more comments, you've got two options, those being our usual suspects of Superman The Action Comics Archives Volume 2 and Superman Chronicles Volume 4. My name is Steve Lacey and I'm a podcaster. Randomizer hit my long boxes and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me, listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20 Minute Long Box. The 
the 20-minute long box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. Other features in Action Comics number 27 included Pet Morgan, The Black Pirate by Sheldon Moldoff, The Three Aces, Tex Thompson, Clip Carson, and... Who? That's right, our old pal Zaytara. There's also a full-page ad for Superman number 6, which we'll be looking at in episode 68, I believe. Another issue, chock full of the adventures of the Man of Tomorrow. All brand new! On sale July 10th at all newsstands. We've also got half-page ads for Mutt and Jeff and the Superman radio ad. It looks like the type has been reset, but the Superman radio ad lists the same stations as the one from Action Comics number 26. The book's inside front cover is comprised of a really neat pair of ads. It's two half-page ads promoting all the other books that the company is publishing at this time. The top half has a large image of the cover to All-Star Comics number 1 and promotes that it features stories featuring The Flash and The Hawkman from Flash Comics, The Spectre and Biff Bronson from More Fun Comics, The Sandman and The Hourman from Adventure Comics, and The Green Lantern from All-American Comics. So, while I guess it's really an ad for All-Star Comics, they were indirectly plugging the other titles as well. But in the bottom half, or, or the bottom ad, I guess is maybe a better way to, to describe it, we see images of the covers of Superman number 5, Action Comics number 25, Batman number 1, and Detective Comics number 41. And it reads, These four comic magazines, in the five shown above, constitute the greatest and largest group in the world. Thrills, fun, adventure, action, and laughs. Then they show the DC bullet and tell us to look for this emblem on each cover. They give you the best in comic magazine features. And I believe this is the first time they've advertised the DC bullet as a company-wide branding mark. It's cool to see that it comes in an ad promoting Superman and Batman as they were the company's two biggest draws at the time, and really still are today. So, kids, if you like Superman and Batman, look for this logo on other books, because they might have other features you'll like. Like Biff Bronson. (laughs) But in all seriousness, I love seeing things like this come along and, and come together and form as I'm reading through the books. You can just feel the comics industry shaping and molding itself. Last but not least, this issue also has our 13th Superman of America page. This time we have a message from Clark Kent saying how they sent out all the prizes from the big Superman contest and that they received many letters in reply, you know, giving thanks for the prizes. They then go on to print four of the letters, those from William Whipple of Arnold, Maryland, Harold Ringler of Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, Joyce And again, I'm going to butcher this. I I really am sorry, Joyce. Joyce Smeriglis? 
Smerg? Smer... I have no idea. Anyway, she's from Lawrence, Massachusetts, and Robert McDonald of Gerardville, Pennsylvania. None of the letters are more than your, you know, your basic notes of thanks, so I'm not going to read them, but they are notable for being the very first letters from readers printed in the pages of a Superman-related comic book. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, true letters pages won't come along for quite some time, so I really liked seeing these letters here, and I hope that in a future issue, kind of soon, that we will see more of this type of thing. Just They're neat little time capsules. I love seeing the names of kids that were actually reading the books at the time. Uh, but anyway, the message continues. Uh, the message from Clark Kent continues, saying that there will be more contests down the road, and that if you're not already a member of the club, you should join right away. And then there's a reminder of the club's motto of strength, courage, and justice. Like always, we also have Superman's secret message, which can be decoded using, well, it says Code Mars, but you actually need to use Code Mercury, uh, number one, on your Superman of America club decoder. And the message is, remember to be kind and generous to those who are weaker and less fortunate than yourselves. Other books out around the time of this issue of Action Comics, it was kind of a boring month, really and truly. In Batman, in the Batman story from Detective Comics number 41, Robin is given his very own solo mission and goes undercover to solve a murder and a kidnapping at Blake's School for Boys. Adventure Comics number 52 saw the final Anchors Away strip by Bart Toomey, as well as the final Rusty and His Pals strip by Bill Finger and Bob Kane, axed uh, presumably to allow Finger and Kane to focus more time on The Dark Knight. Flash Comics number 8 was out with a spiffy new cover logo, making it look more like those uh, of the company's other titles, like Action and Detective. And then there was All-American Comics number 17, the second appearance of the Green Lantern, and interestingly, finds the hero operating out of Metropolis. There's no reference to Superman in the story, though, so it could have just been a vague coincidence, though, as we're finding out over in uh, on Legends of the Batman, there are a lot of strange coincidences that, that sort of reference Superman in the Batman stories, so that makes me wonder if Bill Finger wasn't a huge fan. Uh, there was no issue of more fun comics this month, because there were two last month. Outside of DC, though, Timely had Daring Mystery Comics number 6, featuring the first appearance of Marvel Boy, and while it's not comic books per se, Will Eisner's The Spirit made his first appearance in the quote-unquote spirit section, which was a 16-page weekly supplement distributed by the, uh, the Register and Tribune Syndicate and inserted into Sunday papers across the country. Let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Oh, <laughs> 
Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. Next week, we'll be looking at the 11th storyline from the Superman radio show. I'll be by myself, which will be a bit unusual, but I hope you'll join me. I want to thank you for joining me this episode. If you have any questions, comments, or other remarks, please feel free to drop me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. You can also follow the show on both Facebook and Twitter to get updates whenever I post a new episode or have other news, and you can message me that way as well. Links to the show's pages on both sites can be found at the show's website, greatcrypton.com, along with the iTunes link and the RSS feed, both of which can be used to subscribe to the show. At the site, you'll also get show notes and back episodes and other Superman and comic book-related posts from time to time. And last but not least, please don't forget to check out the Superman homepage as well as the Superman Podcast Network. Updates are posted on both sites whenever I have new episodes, and there is uh, all sorts of other Superman-related content in between. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you next time. Goodbye! Downstairs, Mr. Tweed has spilled a vat of molten lava in Superman's path and smashed some gas lines. Back downstairs, Mr. Tweed has spilled a vat of molten lava. Or molten. (laughs) Molten lava. Last but not least, this issue also has our 13th Superman of America page. 
This time we have a message from Clark Kent saying how they sent out all the prizes from their gigantic Superman contest and how they received many letters in reply giving thanks for the prizes. They then go on to print four of the letters, those from William Whipple of Arnold, Maryland, Harold Ringler of Cuyahoga Falls in Ohio, Joyce, and I'm going to butcher this, so sorry Joyce, Joyce Smeriglis, Smeriglis? I don't know, I'm sorry, of Lawrence, Massachusetts, and Ronald, Mc, Ronald McDonald, Robert McDonald, Robert McDonald of, I'll tell you what, let's just start that, let's just start that paragraph over, okay? All right. 